Hey everyone, good morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I, I apologize right now. I can't, I can't give you that same kind of energy in return. Um, some of you know this, but um, for the uninitiated this morning, I've actually been on vocal rest all week. Um, doctor's orders, ENT. Long story short, this is my first time actually talking after about six days. And not only does it feel so weird, I feel like I've just come off of like therapy and then have been asked to run a marathon. You know what I mean? So I'm just gonna ask your, your, your forgiveness right now um, and, and your grace, your prayers that this holds up for the next uh, 20, 30 minutes or so. And if I don't say hi to you afterwards, it's not because I don't like you, okay? It's just because I'm trying to save this and, uh, and I'll leave it at waves. But again, thank you for coming. And what I want you to do with me this morning is, is come back with me long, long ago. And it is so hard for me not to follow that phrase with a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> but I do want you to come back with me to a place far, far away and just picture two lonely travelers making an epic journey of sorts back to the place of their ancestry and roots. I want you to imagine the conditions. Bad roads, traveling on foot, a climate that is not hospitable, and to make matters worse, one of the travelers is an expectant mother. After days of this journey, they finally make it but not without the trip taking its tolls. And here this expectant young mother finds herself in the throes of labor, far from home, without anywhere to go. Her fiancé is fortunate enough to find an innkeeper who's willing to let them find some space for the night in the back by the animals and what amounts to basically a barn, and there in that place, a long time ago in a place far, far away, a child is born, a son, one whom prophets had spoken of and foretold, one who angels even came and proclaimed as a savior with words like glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. I want to give you that line one more time. And I just ask, let it kind of sink in a little bit this morning. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. Glory and peace. Two words that have come to echo down through today. They find themselves popping up every December, right? Peace on earth. Glory of God. And for many, it basically gets reduced to something like this. The hope that someday we all just get along. And that in the meantime, we would just tolerate each other. Or the hope for some that there would be some kind of inner sense of calm. An inner sense of calm and, and the storm of life that goes on in here. And for 2,000 years, I think these words have become so powerful because I think so many of us yearn for that kind of peace, for any 
kind of peace. And we start looking for it wherever we can grab it. And so often I can at least speak for myself. I find the things that I think will bring me some sense of calm, some sense of peace, and some sense of stillness to the storm inside often prove themselves to be fleeting. How about you? They're vapid or a facade. that They have a lot of promise. But you start getting into it and they start to evaporate away And a certain sense of frustration or even hopelessness can come for a lot of people who are really desperately yearning for a deeper sense of peace. Now this this peace on earth that those angels proclaimed over Jesus so long ago in that place far, far away is a different kind of peace. And it's one that, that really, for many people, it proves to be hard to swallow. A stumbling block is how the New Testament will put it. Because it's a peace that's very paradoxical. It's a peace that seems anything but peace. It's a peace that isn't so much the absence of conflict as it is being in the heart of conflict. And it's a peace that's ultimately won by suffering and torture and death. What the peace is that those angels proclaimed was peace that's won through a cross. Now, now for the last four weeks or so, We've been spending some time gathering together talking about why Jesus died. And we've been approaching it from that historic point of view. What actually happened in 30 AD that got Jesus nailed to a cross? Today I want to shift the focus. And I want to shift the question from why to how. I don't want to talk so much today about why Jesus died as much as I want to talk about how he died. And of course, for any of us here who have had any kind of interface with Christianity in any kind of meaningful way over the course of our lives, we know that, well, he died on a cross. But because we don't think people die on crosses anymore today, it's kind of just a theoretical idea. It's out there. But what I want to talk to you today about is how a cross kills. What what actually did he endure on that day that stands as the pivot point and the centrality of what the Christian faith, hope, and peace is fundamentally all about. Now, I know some of us here have seen Passion of the Christ. But if you're under the age of 25, you probably haven't. And many others haven't seen it as well. And it's done an incredible job of painting a powerful, artistic picture of what Jesus had to suffer that day. But I'm going to approach it this morning a little bit differently, a little bit more forensically. What were the Romans trying to accomplish by stringing up a person on a cross? And my purpose is this. Because I think to miss that, to not know that which was so known to those people of the New Testament, to miss that 
is to miss the heart of Christianity. Now, I do want to ask for your forgiveness up front here today. There will be times where for some of you this may get explicit. And my purpose in this is not just shock value or something like that. It's not to be gratuitous. It's because I think if we are to understand what Jesus did for us, what it means when the New Testament writers will quote Jesus saying, unless you carry your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. we got to know what it means. And to walk away and turn our eyes from what Jesus has done, I think is ultimately to lessen what he's done and to lessen the honor that he's due for what he truly endured for you and for me. Now, crucifixion is considered by most to be probably the most horrific and heinous mode of execution ever devised by humanity. And yet for Jesus, what he faced wasn't crucifixion alone, but was a series of events that led up to it. This past week has been strange for me, not only because of the vocal rest, but in this place of personal silence, immersing myself in in the material again, because believe it or not, the effects of crucifixion are known today. We think of crucifixion as something 2,000 years past. But crucifixion still occurs today. People are still being crucified by ISIS, but others. In Sudan, it's happened in Egypt, it happens in Syria. Crucifixion was still practiced in the Middle Ages. And in fact, there's people in the Philippines to this day that as an act of personal devotion, talk about this for your quiet time, on Good Friday will crucify themselves to try to experience and endure just a taste of what Jesus might have had to face. So it's seen and it's known. And immersing myself in oddly forensic pathologists and doctors and coroners and... Historians and archaeologists who immerse themselves not only in the material today, but the historic records, both gospel and otherwise, have been able to shed light on exactly what happened for Jesus on that fateful day. And as we've seen through the gospel account, it really began with a scene in a garden. Jesus had just met with his disciples for what would arguably be the last time before facing what he needed to face. And he goes off to this garden. It's a quiet place. I hear garden and I think like tomatoes are growing, right? This is not what you need to have in mind. What you need to have in mind is that safe space, that sanctuary. Where is that place where you go to try to find a little bit of calm, a little bit of peace, a little bit of quiet, a little bit of security in the storm of your life. According to the Gospels, Jesus had a place like this, and it was what they called a garden, a park, a quiet place called Gethsemane in a time alone when no one else would be there. We see the story of Jesus on his knees, 
shaking, begging, pleading with God to let there be another way than this way of the cross. Now, I I shared some quotes with you a few weeks ago, but I I need to share just a sample of them again today. Quotes of first century historians and writers, not, not out of the Bible, commenting on this Roman practice called crucifixion. One writer named Cicero will call it the most cruel and terrifying penalty. Josephus, that ancient Jewish historian, writes of it as the most pitiable, pitiable of deaths. And Cicero later will say this, the word cross, even the very word cross, should be so far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts. Don't even think about it. Don't dare see it or hear anything about it, for it's not just the actual occurrence or the endurance of them, but it's even the risk of them. You know what I mean? Even the liability that this could happen to you. The expectation. Indeed, the very mention of them. It's unworthy of a Roman citizen or a free man. Because in Jesus' day, they knew crucifixion very well. It was a common practice done publicly to humiliate and degrade. And Jesus grew up his life not only hearing about the cross, not only knowing the threat of the cross for any subjected citizen of the empire, but seeing it from the time he was a little boy. Going past the posts, going past the bodies, seeing it, hearing the stories of the forefathers, of the ancestors, maybe even of the relatives who had to face. Jesus knew full well what the word cross meant. And he was terrified. You ever think about this? How bad does something have to be that it causes the Son of God to be terrified? And according to the Gospels, we find him in this garden right before the events unfold, begging and pleading with God that there might be another way. One of the Gospel writers, a man named Luke, who was actually a physician, even records that he began to sweat so profusely and his sweat began to fall like drops of blood. Have you ever been so afraid, I mean so scared, that your body started to tremor and you started to sweat? I have. Have you been there? Has it ever fallen like blood? Believe it or not, according to the people who who have written on the subject, this is a known medical condition called hemodrosis. And it's brought on by severe and acute anxiety that then becomes triggered by fear. In other words, it is possible to become so terrified, so afraid, that capillaries in your sweat ducts begin to break and you actually begin to bleed, to sweat blood. There's case studies of this throughout even the, the 19th and 20th centuries. Stories of condemned criminals being led to gallows for execution who begin to shake and tremble violently and drip sweat of blood. Accounts of women 
surviving horrible rape, experiencing the same. Stories of sailors who found themselves in horrific storms at sea. Stories of one, an 11-year-old girl that I read about who during the air raids in England in World War II would become so afraid that it would just begin to pour. And here we find Jesus in a garden. Knowing what would take place. Now the series of events unfolds from there. In this safe, quiet place that's meant to be a place of solace and refuge, a mob appears, armed, with all the stereotypical things of a lynch mob, swords and clubs and angry and and seeking for him and through betrayal of friends and false accusations and illegal arrests, leading to a sleepless night of interrogation and beating and the pressure being put on to try to get him condemned, combined with a lack of sleep and food and a lack of water. It all started to come together in a perfect storm, taking its toll, wearing down the strength and the resolve of a man who needed every ounce he could hold on to to endure what he would have to face. Now, these past several weeks, we've been looking at the same passage out of one of the gospel writers named Mark, which then begins to describe of how Jesus actually was condemned before Pontius Pilate. And I'm not going to read it again today, but instead, if you'll permit me, to just take snapshots and highlights along the way to illustrate how Jesus died for you and me. In one of the most, I believe, understated passages of the entire New Testament, this little verse says this, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. It's so short and so brief that you could almost just miss it. But if you'll permit me, what I'd like to explain to you today is what it exactly means that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. It was a common practice in the Roman world to beat prisoners with a whip, and specifically those who were going to go the way of the cross, to flog them first, to break their resistance and break their will. Now, for years, I just kind of had like, you know, Indiana Jones in my mind. You know, it's just kind of like that that long kind of bullwhip. But the Roman practice was a little bit different. They would take a different instrument instead called a scourge. Now, this is just a replica of one meant for personal use. Don't ask. The ones the Romans would have used would have been far longer than this. So instead of just one tail, there would be anywhere from three to seven to nine or maybe more, but they would do something else instead, something insipid. They would add to it something that in Latin was pronounced this, scorpiones, 
I think you can understand what that means. They would weave in to the whip jagged pieces of sheep bone, pieces of metal, or stone, and often to the end would weave in little lead weights so that when the whip would come across you, it would not just sting, it would bite. It would grab in and take hold, having to be pulled freed with the weights crushing bone and capillary, muscle, and skin. I want to show you a picture today from 1863 in Baton Rouge of a slave who was whipped. And to give honor not only to the men in the 1800s who had to endure this in our country, but also to give honor to Jesus who had to endure, I think we need to see what it means when it says they had Jesus flogged. And what you see is without the scorpionas attached. And so what Pilate had done was this. Taken the weakened, condemned prisoner, afraid for his life, lashing his hands together, stripping him of his clothes, and putting him to a whipping post. Some would say up high, others would say down low to keep you stepped stooped over, and two people called lictors would come on each side of the condemned, each taking one of these scourges in their hands, and you need to hear it again, and again, and again, cutting into his back, and his shoulders, and his legs, reducing the one we call Son of God to to this. Now after Pilate had him flogged and condemned him to be crucified, it says that the guards took him and they put together a crown of thorns on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe and they began to strike him in the face this morning before coming. I snipped a branch off of our hawthorn tree. Not the same species that would have been there in Jerusalem in the first century AD, but close enough, I think, to give us an image of what this means. Now, I love this tree. I think it's beautiful. But every time I've got a mow on our riding mower underneath this tree, you know, like the image of chainsaws starts coming to mind. There have been so many times, because heaven forbid I leave a strip of grass, that I've had to mow under this accursed thing. And it catches you in the face and it catches in the eye. And let me tell you, it hurts. Bad. And I'm trying to avoid it. For me, it's often this kind of weird calisthenic move of trying to mow under it, holding the branch while I'm trying to drive underneath, and one catches me by surprise. But I need you to imagine angry guards who don't want to be there, who hate this man and are filled with contempt, doing it, weaving it together, and slamming it on his face. And not leaving that enough. 
but then taking a staff in their hands, as some gospel writers will put it, and beating it around his head again and again. Have you ever been hit in the head with a stick? I have. It hurts. My brother gave me a blow once, just by accident. Not even hard, and it was partially deflected. And for me, it resulted in stitches. And the image you need to get in your mind today, and I, and I dare you to risk it, is to see Jesus in this bloodied, mutilated state now having this, this next instrument of torture placed on his head as he's punched and beat and spit upon and jeered again and again. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, mocking him to his face. And it says they took a purple robe and they wrapped it around that mutilated back as they mocked him. And as the wounds began to coagulate and stiffen, ripping it off again, restarting the bleeding process. Forensic analysts will say that at this point, from scourging on, Jesus would no doubt have begun entering into something called hypovolemic shock. Hypo meaning less than or under, like hypoglycemic, and, and volemic, you could hear volume in there. A severe loss of body fluids. Between blood and water and sweat, the dehydration, the weakness, the delirium, the pain. And when they were finished, the Gospels say they found the cross. And carrying his own cross, he went out to the execution spot just outside the city. Now, now contrary to what you'd see in Passion of the Christ or, or even in, in many modern renditions, when Jesus carried the cross, he probably didn't carry the whole, you know, thing. Instead, what he probably carried was just simply the horizontal cross piece called the patibulum because... The Romans executed way too many people. The posts were always left in places. Just put the crossbar on and lead them out to the same thing that we can reuse again and again and again. And here's Jesus in this weakened state with his back and shoulders torn apart from a sleepless night and, and struggling from severe dehydration, now forced to carry this 50 or 60 pound rough hewn log for a half mile journey without clothes, without shoes, on rough, poorly paved roads, rutted from animals and carts to the jeers and mockery of people with the charge hung around his neck like a scarlet letter. I remember when my brother stepped on a toothpick once. Serves him right for hitting me in the head. <laughs> and the amount of pain Something as simple as a two-inch splinter of wood through the foot caused, and I need you to imagine the half-mile journey. 
stumbling under the weight repeatedly falling in your bruised, mutilated state into the gravel and dirt with the sun baking you in the process and you'll begin to understand what Jesus did. According to the gospel writers, the combined effects began to take their toll so much that he couldn't even make the journey anymore. And it was the centurion's responsibility to make sure that the prisoner lived until crucifixion. So they found someone in the crowd, someone at random, probably someone who was standing too close, who dared show sympathy or maybe make eye contact. And they threw the crossbeam on him and forced him to carry the weight, leading Jesus in tow to the place in Aramaic called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And here, they crucified him. And as I shared with you earlier, the effects of crucifixion are known today from people not only studying the records and, and doing experiments, believe it or not, with people in controlled states to see just what this does, but also examining those who have literally had to endure it. Many times today with ISIS, the person will just be tied. And the same was true back in Roman days, but on occasion, when they wanted to be especially cruel, they would use nails. My whole life long, I heard nails. You know, and I got like the two and a half inch carpenter nail in my mind. But more realistic from archaeological finds would be something like this. Something big enough and strong enough to suspend a body and support the weight. Railroad spike, if you will. And they would stretch the victim out. And a guard would lay over his arm as another one took a hammer and place the nail either in the lower palm or in the wrist. And it would hammer it again, and again, and again. The reports that I've read of the people who study this Say that in either spot runs a nerve packet called the medial nerve, the median nerve, I believe. I'm not going to try to pretend to know the anatomy of this, but from the reports that I read, apparently hitting this nerve cluster causes the bodies one of the most horrendous pains imaginable. There are stories of people in World War I who had been shot or lanced or lost a hand who reported the pain to be so horrific that many committed suicide to escape it, and not all the best efforts from morphine could reduce the shock wave that it created. Several years ago, I saw a movie, 127 Hours. You know this one? True life story about a guy who got caught up in Utah. A rock fell on his hand and he had to cut it off. And the movie shows in horrific detail 
what it was like for the man who survived as a result from that day. And I think of that scene of Jesus where they nail him to this thing with these spikes in his wrists. And I can't even imagine what it must feel like to have yourself not only pierced that way and pierced that way, but then lifted up that way with all your weight suspended. And then they came to the feet. And contrary to popular belief in most Christian art, Jesus probably did not have his feet nailed one over the other with one single nail. For a variety of reasons, more common was to have the legs straddle the cross. With one nail driven in the heel bone this way and another nail driven in the heel bone that way, there's actually an archaeological find of a person who was crucified where the Romans, just probably goring it out of the wood, left the nail intact that way. Other accounts say they wouldn't drive through the bone at all but through the Achilles tendon. Instead, and there he would hang, stretched out on this nail and this nail with his feet pierced, or maybe in front, one through each, bearing the full weight for you and for me. And together hanging on this cross converges the dehydration, the mocking, the beatings, the flogging, the weakness, the shock, the sepsis, the pain. And what has always been mesmerizing to me is in this state, lifting himself up to say things like, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. One writer commenting on the entire process will say this. What do you die from? What do you die from when hanging from a cross. One writes, cardiac and respiratory arrest due to hypovolemic and traumatic shock due to crucifixion. Another says this, apparently there were a variety of possibilities. Shock, sundry pulmonary problems, sepsis from scourging or nails, dehydration if you last long enough, or even feeding animals if you have no one to shoo them away. Asphyxiation is a traditional explanation although it seems to have been rebutted because there have been test subjects and actual survivors who had reported no problem with breathing. breathing. But the pain? And that is the whole point after all. Pain and endurance. That is what Jesus did in its horrific array for you and for me. That is what 
brings peace. That for every cold thought, harsh word, mean inclination, for every point of darkness and regret in your life, for every hurtful and harmful thing done to yourself or to others. That's one more whip of a scourge. That's one more pound of a nail. That's one more beating, one more moment of enduring that Jesus did for you and for me. It's how he died. It's why he died. To bring peace. True peace. Peace that lasts. Peace that endures. Peace that never ends. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests.